Hello and welcome back to the Boise Brunch Podcast, a podcast for munching while taking a stroll through history. I'm one of your hosts, Cameron, the brunchiest of the boys. And I'm Elaine, the boisiest of the brunch. Bam, as Alexis Mateo would say. Cue intro music. Okay, hello and welcome back to the Boys Who Brunch podcast. We got to level with you viewers. We apologize for the months of our lack of content. We are worms. We are we are worthless worms, as the painted panic from Hercules once said. But um, we're doing a boys rebranding. Okay, Ooh. we have some changes for our podcast. Elaine, you want to explain some of the changes? Yes. So, I don't know about y'all, but in the middle of my scrumptious bites. In a delicious brunchy meal, <laughs> I like to soak up some freshly zested stories. So that's what we have for you today. Yeah, and as a one of us being an ex-history major and one of us just digging storytelling, uh-huh. here we are. We're going to be coming with a theme every week yeah. and telling you guys some stories in between our, our brunch. Mm-hmm. We're obviously very qualified to do this. Exactly. Based on our resumes. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's go on to today's theme. What's today's theme, Cameron? Oh, today's theme, Elaine? I'm glad you asked. So today's theme is concubines, <gasps> courtesans, Lerans, Devadesis, prostitutes. <laughs> Today we're talking about sex workers. Yes. So sex workers have obviously been a thing throughout history. In Renaissance Italy, we had the courtesans. In China, throughout history, there has been concubines, which have followed a consort system. And even in Edo period, Japan, there have been oirons, which have been like established sex workers. And as Cameron and I have been doing research on this, we learned that sex workers are really not one-dimensional. I feel like in culture today, we see them generally as victims of life's misfortunes or people who have made poor life choices, but they're not so. And they're not necessarily martyrs of feminism either. Um, From our research on sex workers, we noticed a trend. A lot of them have very high emotional intelligence and they're very self-driven and enterprising. There are several cases throughout history of um, sex workers who were able to use their Um, jobs to really move on up in society. Um, For example, concubines gained power by burying the emperor's son. They were able to gain equal political power of being an empress. Um, And in order to do so, they would compete against thousands of other women in um, in the emperor's harem to be invited to the emperor's bed and have a chance at producing a son for him. There's tons of scheming, tons of strategy, and tons of charm involved in it. And oftentimes throughout history, women look to sex work as their best available opportunity in the workforce. Um, if you remember um, early America, the, women's wor- the women working in the Lowell Mills, it's not a great job opportunity. Um, and they're not getting paid very high wages at all. Um, so it's not just their only opportunity for income, it's their best opportunity. And many of them are so good at navigating sex work that they become extremely wealthy and powerful due to it. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself, but... Yeah, through our research, it seems like I also just found that sex work throughout history is just definitely a way for women to, like, gain their own independence and not have to rely on a man. I did a lot of research on, like, courtesanship in 
Renaissance Italy. It's like the only possible way that you as a woman could be independent and make your own money and rely on yourself as opposed to rely on a man. Yeah. So yeah, sex workers, man. Not one-dimensional and just all-around stand-up human beings. Even now, like... We wrote down here, decriminalize prostitution, and I think that's worth noting to our viewers, because, like, yeah, decriminalize prostitution, decriminalize sex work, like, all we're doing in today's society is just making it more dangerous for something that's going to be happening anyways, and instead, like, feeding into, like, like human trafficking and just, like, a lot of nasty stuff that exactly. happens behind the scenes. Exactly. We could make sex work much safer, um and much more respectable of an industry if we were to decriminalize it. Um, I think before we did the research on this podcast and, pre- and we're preparing for it, we believed, like, we should decriminalize prostitution. But after doing all this research, like, we're pretty passionate about it. Like, it's important to decriminalize prostitution in order to, like, save a lot of lives and, like... And protect the people that are, like, in the industry. Because otherwise, yeah. if you think about it, like, there is one specific advocate for decriminalizing sex work and she put it as in if you as a sex worker were to get abused or anything were to happen to you you wouldn't want to like report it to the authorities or anything because you'd be too afraid since you also are committing a crime by just being a sex worker as itself so making things a lot more safer by decriminalizing them is definitely very important yes So, so As we stated before, with our changes in the podcast, we are going to be going into our first story. But before we do that, hey, Elaine. Yeah, what's up? Um, I don't think our our table's ready at this very real brunch establishment that we're at. Um, <laughs> so why don't you come grab a drink with me at the brunch bar? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm there. I'll see you there. Hello, folks, and welcome to The Brunch Bar, a new segment of the Boys Who Brunch podcast, which we dish about the current drinks that we are partaking in. Elaine, what drink you got going? Well, the drink I have going is a lemonade, and it's inspired by a kind of like traditional Vietnamese (laughs) lemonade where you put a lot of sugar and then some like lemon soda and then some lemons when my dad has been trying to cut out white sugar so his version of it is we put like a layer of honey then we put like some seltzer it could be some lime seltzer it could be some plain seltzer and then a squeeze of half a lemon and that's your lemonade okay well seeing as this is a non-visual medium why don't we give some like visual cues like Like, describe this lemonade for us some clinking ice I'm I'm getting some clinking ice for the, for the viewers' ears. <laughs> some ASMR yeah, action. Yeah, the stirring of my ice cubes. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's great. It looks like a solid lemonade with some great it's refreshing the ice in it. The carbonation is the key. That sounds beautiful. I want to try this lemonade next time we're with each other. Of course, of course. So, what do you have, Cameron? Oh, what do I yeah. have going? What are you nursing over, over here there? at the the mm-hmm. brunch bar? Over in your oh, corner. I have a raspberry yogurt mm-hmm. smoothie. Actually, a pineapple raspberry oh, yogurt wow. smoothie. Um, my yes, my mom did recently buy a juicer, and 
yes, my grandma did make me the smoothie. And if I had to rate it on a scale of one to yogurt, I would I would give it yogurt. It's very um, yogurty. <laughs> I'm wondering, is yogurt the pinnacle of smoothie success? Because I wouldn't agree with that. I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> like, is yogurt the equivalent of 10? Because... I wouldn't say it's like super fruity. I would say it's very yogurt. I see. Okay. So yeah, this has been The Brunch Bar. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Alright, great brunch bar sesh. Now, Cameron, what story have you brought us today? So I'm going to be telling you about Ching Shi, otherwise known as the Pirate Queen. I know, get excited. <laughs> it's like All the right. lack of emotion she, towards this but no queen. get 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 hyped it's cool i'm just ex- i'm anticipating what's happening next yeah. i'm s- i'm anticipating it for you okay so ching shi <laughs> once upon a time in 1775's china there was a woman born who would later be known as ching shi in china's guangdong province so given today's theme of course she grew up to become a prostitute um, and she actually worked on a floating brothel in the city of Canton. I love this floating brothel idea. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> like, I have the imagery very vivid in my mind. I don't mm-hmm. know. It seems you really know the cool. Ocean. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so she soon gained a reputation within the brothel as a business savvy woman who would trade in secrets with her wealthy and political clientele. It's worth noting that in this area of southern China, there was a decent pirate population, and that a lot of the trade secrets that she learned were definitely from these clients as well. But by 1801, if we do the math, that means Ching Shi is now 26 years old. Notorious pirate of the time named Zheng Yi visited the floating brothel. He was just as intrigued as us by this floating brothel. (laughs) He was. He was like, this seems really cool and I want to have sex, so I'm going to visit it. In the middle of the ocean, yeah. Yeah. So like I said, uh, he was a notorious pirate of his time. He actually was the commander of the Red Flag Fleet which by this time had nearly about 200 ships within it. Ooh. Yeah, so big, big man, a very important man. Um, so Zheng Yi fell madly in love with Ching Shi and her beauty and asked her to become his bride. Seeing her opportunity, Ching Shi negotiated the terms of her marriage and demanded an equal share in all future plundering, also a share of the power within the Red Flag Fleet. So, yes. yeah, self-advocacy, we gotta love it. Um, she's not mm-hmm. gonna accept defeat. Like, if I'm gonna be your bride, mm-hmm. like, I need some respect. And She's like, fuck a prenup. Yep, respect that, <laughs> respect it. Uh, <laughs> um, so the terms are agreed upon, and the two are married, with Ching Shi now leaving behind her humble floating brothel. Sex mm-hmm. work life in the past. But the business-savvy woman was always there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On to the pirate life for me. Um, so in 1802... <laughs> there came an end to a major conflict in Vietnam, which many pirates of the time were taking advantage of. So since they are now returning to southern China, along with this lack of government um, pushback from pirates, because like there was a White Lotus Rebellion going on at the time. So basically, pirates were able to gain power within southern China. So soon these pirates formed large color-coded fleets, which were all ruled by their own leaders. There was the black, green, white, yellow, blue, and of course the red fleet. So Zhang and Qing, as I already said, were leaders of the Red Fleet, but now they had a lot more troops because they were of these like pirates that were coming from Vietnam. 
So the Red Flag Fleet now had about 600 ships and eventually would grow to about 17 to 1800 ships with a crew of about 50 to 70,000 pirates. That is enormous. Yeah. That is, e I can't even wrap my head around that. Like, imagine that swarm of ships and people coming towards you in the middle of the ocean. I, I don't think right. I can imagine that. It's 50 like, to 70,000 like pirates. Two squirrels, two squirrels run up to me at a time in Berkeley and I'm overwhelmed, <laughs> let alone 17 to 1800 ships. How big is Berkeley? It's like 80,000 students or 60? I think there's 40,000 undergraduates, so... So either know. way, this is like potentially more pirates than there are students. All of Berkeley yeah. students, yeah. That's crazy. So yeah, um, of course, this is a big deal, as, <laughs> as you can see just <laughs> from numbers alone. So um, with these color-coded fleets, however... And like I was alluding to, so the Red Flag Fleet was actually the biggest fleet within this whole color-coded system. Um, but obviously having a color-coded system, it led to turf wars between these color codes. And, but yeah, so this final, all these wars in this conflict between the pirates finally ended with Xingxi and her husband posing a peace agreement. And they basically, this peace agreement allowed uh, formation of a large pirate organization with all the colored fleets working together and the red flag fleet as their leader. So now not only are they a leader of their own 17 to 1800 ships, but they basically are the leader of a more wider pirate organization with six wow. total pirate fleets. So yeah. Oh my gosh. So, soon after the agreement was made in 1807, Qingxi's husband, Zhang Yi, suddenly died. So, obviously, patriarchal society, Zhang Yi died. This initially was thought to be like, oh no, like, it's all going to fall apart. But Qingxi yeah. would not allow this to happen. So instead, she decided to act swiftly, mm -hmm. and she elected Zhang Yi's second-in-command, Cheng Po, who she later married in her life, as the co-leader of the Red Flag Fleet along with her. And since Cheng Po was a very well-respected man within the fleet, obviously the Red Flag Fleet very easily accepted this. And with unity within the leading fleet itself, the surrounding fleets decided to remain um, faithful to the agreement that they already put in place. So now with her leading six pirate fleets, she united all these pirates even more by enacting a code of strictly enforced laws. Something I like to and call these are her laws. Yeah, these are her laws. But yeah, it's something I like to call the pirate code. So you wanna you wanna hear the pirate Ooh. code, Elaine? Yeah. Okay. So this is like what everyone like, you know, this is a federal government here, you know, and they're all the regular city states. Like <laughs> yeah. this is the yeah. federal government's laws, right? So law number one. Anyone giving their own orders or disobeying their superior will get beheaded and their body will be thrown into the ocean. But where will their head go? Who knows? But their body will be... I, I assume also in the ocean. <laughs> good point, good point. But I assume also in the ocean. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, don't, don't disobey your superiors. Number, yeah. Law number two, anyone caught stealing from public funds or individuals that help supply to pirates will get beheaded and their body will be thrown into the ocean. No stealing. No stealing. Rule number Listen, three. Listen, don't steal. Anyone who loots a town or ship who already paid tribute will get beheaded and their body will be thrown into the ocean. Okay, we're loyal to our, <laughs> to our tribute payers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Rule number four, anyone who rapes a woman will get beheaded and their body will be thrown into the ocean. 
Yes, we love female rulers. <laughs> we love female rulers. Rule number five. Anyone who is unfaithful to their wife will get beheaded and their body will be thrown into the ocean. Are they having... Are they bringing their wives onto the fleet? Like, that doesn't seem... If they... Okay, so, like, obviously oh, they have yeah, wives. I, I mean, like, yes, Cheng yes, Po yes. is, like, now, like, the husband mm-hmm. to, you know, like, Ching Shi. So, you know, like, people have wives. And basically, if you have, like, a legitimate wife, like, you have to be faithful You can't to go to a, flo- a floating brothel. You're not allowed to go to a floating exactly. brothel. Well, this leads us into the rule number six. So when plundering a city, obviously you think of pirates, you think like, you know, like looting cities, plundering, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when plundering a city, you may choose a young woman to be your bride. Like, it's allowed. And I don't know if the woman has much say, which which obviously sucks, but, you know, you may choose a woman to be your bride. Um, but once again, since she is your wife, if you are unfaithful to her, Elaine, you want to take it away, what will happen? You will get beheaded and your body will be, will be thrown in the ocean. Good one, good one, good one. Okay, so number, rule number seven. If you're engaged in consensual sex while the rest of your men are looting a town, you will get beheaded and your body will be thrown into the ocean. Also, the woman <laughs> engaged in the act will be tied to a boulder and thrown into the ocean oh as well. Oh my god! Basically, this is just like business ventures, you know, like... You're really going to be, like, a lazy ass, like, having sex while the rest of your yeah. men, like, actually get shit done. Like, no. Yeah. She will not have it. She doesn't even care if it's consensual sex. She mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. demands consensual sex otherwise, because if you ever rape anyone, you will get beheaded and your You're... body will be thrown into the ocean. Exactly. But <laughs> if you are engaged in consensual sex while you're on the job, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Rule number She's eight. If you ever try to leave the pirate life... Elaine, what do you think will happen? Will you get beheaded and your body will be thrown into into the ocean? (laughs) I psyched you, Elaine. (laughs) Instead, your ears will get chopped off, but you will be set free. Okay. Yeah, you can still live, but no more ears. You won't have any ears. So basically, also under her rules, she established... She was known uh, for being very smart with her finances and, like, mm-hmm. financing the overall, like, pirate organization. So, um, it was... Like, she set up a strict finance policy, too, where if you are the Caesar who plundered the booty, it will then be inspected by the group. Hee <laughs> um, And the original Caesar would gain 20% of the profit, while the remaining money will be placed into the fleet-wide public fund. Um, and a lot of times this would, this money would go into either getting new ships or funding ships that aren't doing well so that she makes Mm -hmm. sure that basically her, it's just exponential growth. Like if you aren't doing well for a ship, she's going to fund you so that you can be doing better. And so everything Mm -hmm. will be doing great is basically what she's trying to ensure. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, other than plundering, obviously, you can think how that isn't going to be a steady source of income. So as a means of ensuring more steady form of income, Ching Shi got her men to become a part of the salt trade. And to optimize this endeavor even more, she made sure that each of her individual ships took advantage of all possible trade that is in their individual salt routes. So if your salt route is also allows you to go through like um, local fishing, then you will get involved with like the local fishing trade. While if your assault route takes you farther into, like, foreign lands, then you might be coming more involved in, like, foreign opium trade. Basically, if you're going to be making a trip that obviously trips cost a lot of money, then you're going to be yeah. taking advantage of every possible business that you can for trade yeah. purposes. 
So yeah, she's definitely like, you know, really got the finances going for the pirates at this time. And actually, with all of the power that she had in southern China at the time, soon the coastal southern regions of China were taken over by a newly established pirate government that demanded taxes over its people. So people in southern China were paying taxes to this pirate organization because this is basically mm-hmm. their government now. But the Qing dynasty that had ruled over China at the time would obviously not allow their villages to be taken away so easily. Yeah. The pirate's life is not for them. The pirate's life is not for them, exactly. So, <laughs> of course, like, if you're not going to allow your this to happen, you're going to be sending mm-hmm. troops and invitations of rival pirates to attack Qingxi and her, uh... her pirate organization. But, of course, no one was able to stop her because she's just so powerful. She has all the colors of the fleets. Literally, all the colors of the all fleets, the all the colors of the rainbow working together to <laughs> defeat anyone who rivals them. So, um, accepting the defeat that they wouldn't be able to physically take over these southern regions, the emperor sent an official named Bai Ling to negotiate terms for an agreement. They offered large sums of money to stop the conflict, but um, Qingxi would say no to these offers, in which case Bai uh-huh. Ling would come with counter offers with even larger, larger sums of money, and she would keep saying no. But at this time, you can, you can think that with all the fightings that she just did, um, she has a lot of repairs to make, and generally her fleet is not doing too well. So, of course, the money is very tempting, but yeah. as just a smart businesswoman, she would not accept their terms. So she kept saying mm-hmm. no, even though they kept counter-offering with more money, and instead, later on, she went where Bai Ling and his men were stationed, and she demanded basically these terms that demanded a lot of money and power for the pirates of the time. As a result of this, Bai Ling and his men laughed at the offer because it was just mm-hmm. way too in favor of the pirates and thought she was ridiculous for even suggesting such a thing. Mm-hmm. But obviously, thinking about how powerful and great Qingxi is, you do not laugh at this woman. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So after they laughed at her, she sent her men to flood the city and basically encaptured Bai Ling and his men and... The only way that she would allow them to escape is to accept her offer. And, of course, since they were super, like, they were captured in order to escape, they did accept her offer and um, agreed to her terms. Fully. Like, fully agreed to her terms. No negotiation involved. And what were involved. Terms? <laughs> You want to know what her terms were, Elaine? What were her terms? Okay, so she had a couple terms. Term number one is that the pirates will avoid all forms of punishment. You will not be able mm-hmm. to have any kind of, like, action against these pirates even after these terms are set. And, yeah. yeah. Of course, she's just securing safety. Like, good for her. Good for her. Um, Rule number two, or term number two, they will be able to maintain a good portion of their fleet so that they can continue things like trade. I think generally, it wasn't said in all the research that I did, but I think obviously generally they're agreeing upon, like, you no longer can, like, have a government in the southern China's villages. So, like, of course, this is, like, you know, like, you have to leave southern China villages, and we are, like, the Qing dynasty is the rulers over this area. But mm-hmm. you will be allowed to maintain your fleet so that you're able to do the trade that you were doing. Um, rule number three is that some of the pirates will be offered government positions in the Qing's dynasty's bureaucracy. I love this. Right. And one of those people was actually Cheng Po, who by at this time, she was married to. 
So now she's married to a rising government official. Um, and yeah. So does this mean it's the end of the pirate life for her? Well, it didn't need to be, but she did decide to retire from the pirate life so that she could raise her new daughter. She already had two sons, but who cares about them? She retired for the pirate life to raise her daughter and um, to just to be with her husband, uh, Chung Po, who is now a rising government official, which is fun. Yes. Um, eventually, her second husband died in 1822. And after that, she actually opened her own gambling house and brothel where she continued to accumulate wealth. And later on, she was even an acting military advisor in the first opium war. She was like, she had such a reputation. They just needed her, her advice on <laughs> military yeah. adventures. It's like she's flooded this entire village. Yeah. In the Qing dynasty and got her people in the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Of course they need her advice in the opium war. How will they win without her? Exactly. But yeah, and then obviously we're nearing the end of Qingxi's life, and she later died at the age of 69 in 1844 with a lot of wealth, fame, and power. And so ends the story of Qingxi, sex worker turned pirate queen. Beautiful. <laughs> truly, a, a truly beautiful career. An a inspiration. Woman who covered all her bases. Yes. I'm sad I just learned about this story. Like, why why haven't we been talking it's, about her? Put some respect on her name. These are both very, like, intense careers to be part of. And she, she was both a sex worker and then a pirate queen. We can't all be sex workers. We can't all be pirate queens. We're not all made for that. She was for both. So thank you for that story, Cameron. <laughs> but you. hey. Hi. I think our seats are ready. You want to head over to the brunch booth? Oh my god, I'd love to. Alright, hello folks and welcome to the brunch booth, another segment of the Boys Who Brunch podcast in which we dish about the dishes we are currently munching on. So, Kevin, what are you munching on? Okay, so I'm currently munching on a breakfast sandwich we got english muffin Ooh. we got bacon that my grandma did in fact put in the air fryer because Ooh. it's just amazing um and we got scrambled eggs what you got elaine what you got going what i've got going is an avocado toast inspired by romeo's mm -hmm. cafe in berkeley and i have an egg on top i'm hoping when i cut open the egg it'll the yolk will spill out and i also have a golden kiwi cut in half ready to scoop out uh I'm very jealous of a golden kiwi right now. Yeah, I'm very excited to start munching on this. Okay, and this has been a successful brunch booth. Now I'm ready to hear your story, Lane. All right. Okay, Lane, um, how about you? What story you got for us today? My sex worker story involves a woman a woman who is responsible for the existence of seattle today i'm talking about lou graham the madame that built seattle so the story takes us takes us back to 1888 mm -hmm. when lou graham 
born Dorothea Georgina Emil Oben arrives in Seattle as a German immigrant. And at this point, Seattle is a 30-year-old logging town and port city. It's pretty new, pretty young. But Lou Graham arrives in Seattle at a turning point in its history. So, like I said, Seattle is built on the logging industry. So, you can imagine lumberjacks, mm-hmm. sailors, Ooh. coarse, laboring, manly men. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. In Seattle at this time. And so... I'm excited. Seattle's thriving on gambling and prostitution businesses. Fun stuff. Cue the suffragists. The Cue suffragists. it. I'm Consider cute. it cued. All right. So I like to call the suffragists the early Karens because these are okay. wealthy, educated, refined women. Um, they're pushing for women's suffrage, but that's not the only part of their movement. Um, and keep in mind that to really get the vibe of the suffragists, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is the group involved in um, the prohibition, these are also people involved in the women's suffrage movement. So you can see how it's like this vibe of kind of like higher class, like higher upper middle class women. Um, they're very well educated. They are not really, asso- they're not associating themselves with lower class women or, low- or lower class people in general. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're doing the important work of women's suffrage, but they're not racially or socioeconomically economically diverse. In fact, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which is probably a pretty familiar name in like American history, public education. Um, She wrote um, during the um, Civil War times, American women of wealth, education, virtue, and refinement, if you do not wish the lower orders of Chinese, Africans, Germans, and Irish with their low ideas of womanhood to make laws for you and your daughters, demand that women too shall be represented in government. So they were arguing over whether they should extend the vote to all men. Um, She made that quote. Okay. So at this time when Lou Graham arrived in Seattle, Seattle gave the women, gave women the right to vote in five years before, or yeah, five years before in 1883. And during this period before 1888, Women have exercised their political power, and they vote out moneyed interests in office, and they enact a series of of reform policies that prohibit liquor, gambling, and prostitution, cutting off a crucial source of income for the city. Um, The city has made a lot of money off fines and licensing, and that's pretty much what funds the the city itself. Um, So the population decreases. There's less sailors coming through, um, less lumberjacks partaking in the businesses in Seattle, and the economy dwindles. Um, by 1888, the women's vote is revoked, um, and so you can kind of imagine the climate that Lou is entering in 1888 Seattle. Um, people in Seattle, they're done with women. No more women in politics, no more women in business. They are not good for Seattle, as the past five years has shown. And there's also the kind of like residue of this like conservative social climate where um, there's like an idea of like we should have these reform policies to limit liquor, limit prostitution, limit gambling. All right, so <laughs> Lou Graham, that's the that's the context. Lou Graham, 1888. She's okay. already been involved in the sex trade um, by the time she's arrived in Seattle, and she, through prostitution, she's accumulated a nice sum of cash. Um, but she's 31 at this point, and she decides 
I'm done working in the field. This pussy is tired. I want to start. <laughs> I want to start my own brothel. So onto her first impressive feat in the story. Okay. So, with the climate of, of Seattle in mind, she tries to convince Jacob Firth, he's a prominent Seattle banker and several of the city's leading businessmen, to invest in her business proposal, a brothel staffed by women who would serve as geisha-like entertainers. And remember, the Japanese geisha are very talented people. They they are. They know art, they know dancing, they know music, and sex isn't there. Um, they actually don't offer sex. Yeah. They're not sex workers, they're entertainers. Um, yeah. Lou combines this geisha idea with sex work, and so okay. she wants to create this very like high-class brothel for um, the refined men of Seattle, and all her sex workers are to be well-versed in either multiple languages, they'd be trained singers, dancers, musicians, comedians, actresses, um, and some of them are even from colleges in the East. So they're very beautiful, talented, intellectual women. And keep in mind, this business is illegal at this point. Um, she's making a business proposal for a business that is illegal. And the climate is really conservative. And so whether it was the persuasive marketing of her proposal, the charm of her personality, or the authority of her intelligence, she manages to convince the investors to believe in her idea, in her idea anyway. Um, they, were they were dazzled by the idea of a high-class intellectual um, and entertainment hub for men of sophistication. And it goes to show how much skill and prowess she has to be able to sell like this illegal business proposal to all these very rich men who are pretty much like the past five years women have destroyed Seattle. So, and, and they believe in her. Just, like, question, like, did she pose it, like, as in this will be, like, a place for, like, women entertainment? Or, like, was it known, like, this is a brothel? This is a brothel. It's oh, okay. known. So they, oh, know wow. this is, they, they know this is illegal. Yeah. And so they do their proposal and they invest um, cash into this project. The business ends up being highly profitable and it energizes business in Seattle. People are coming through Seattle again thanks to Lou's talented team of women. It's a great first year for Lou Gowns Brothel. She makes a lot of money. Woo! Now on to our second impressive feat of this story, um, which takes us <laughs> to the great Seattle fire of 1889. So Seattle's a logging town. Guess what that means? Take a guess. Take a guess. The entire city is built with wood. <laughs> The entire, city is, the entire city is built with wood because it's a logging town, and so okay. they have a lot of wood. So on June 6th, 1889, at approximately 2.30 p.m., an overturned glue pot in a carpentry um, shop results in the obliteration of Seattle's entire business district. It a burns glue down. Pot? Yeah, it burns down entirely, the entire business district. No buildings survive, including Lou Gamma's brothel. It's all been burned down. But to show how successful Lou Graham's brothel was its first year, Lou Graham is one of the few business people who are not completely financially devastated um, by this fire. And in fact, she has enough money to rebuild, and she rebuilds even bigger in less than 18 months. She went from wow. a $3,000 um, $3, parcel of land to a $25,000 parcel of land. She comes back bigger and better. Yeah. And the brothel becomes a truly classy and refined establishment. Um, it's very well known in the city, and in fact, city officials get free drinks there. So a lot of city Ooh. officials are coming through the brothel. 
um, it even becomes a place of politics where policies are discussed. So a lot of important city um, politics is happening in her brothel with all these men and all these talented women. Um, so Lou Graham gains a lot of clout in the city, both in the political and business realm. And so even when a rookie policeman accidentally arrests her for prostitution, um, which is a very real crime in Seattle this time, the jury decides to acquit her and the uh, mayor... Wait, a who, rookie poli- This is a rookie policeman? Yeah, this is a rookie policeman. Ah, um, uh, rookies. Yeah, I know. Ah, uh, noobs. And, Arresting <laughs> Lou Graham, of all people? Like. Of all people. <laughs> and so see how everyone else responds. So the jury acquits her, and then the mayor, who ran on a reform platform, so it's his policies that are creating a larger police force to stop prostitution, he decides to resign. Because he's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't believe I disrespected Lou like that. I was wrong. And so not... It, was it kind of a forced resign because the world didn't really... Like, yeah, the city did he, not like him because he arrested Lou Graham, basically. Yeah, he willfully resigns in response to this, to this event. That's crazy. That's like, the Lou had that much that power. Exactly, exactly. Ugh. Everyone loves her. They're going to her brothel. They're, they're discussing policy there. And mm-hmm. they don't feel like they don't feel that they're sleazy or they're, or they're trash when they're brothel. They feel like they're like very refined, classy men. Okay. And she gains even more renown um, in Seattle by taking carriage rides with her ladies, and she strategically waves at very important people along the way. And so, not only are these carriage rides an advertisement of her business because she has her ladies with her, she establishes prestige of the, the prestige of her brothel because she's like waving to important people like people see oh my god like <laughs> Lou knows all these important men um like you gotta yeah, keep so those really contacts you know you gotta keep those exactly exactly she's a businesswoman <laughs> like like the idea of waving at someone so to much. keep relationships is like so it's just it's, so good it's, it's so, so good. much yeah I'm imagining, like, you know, British royalty, like, waving at their people, but she's, like, just taking a carriage ride just to, yeah. like, wave at like, government she's officials. Like, hey. like, hi. Like, I'll see you at five tonight at the brothel. <laughs> <laughs> and then his politician friends are like, oh, what are you doing at five tonight? Oh, I'm going to Lou Graham's brothel. You want to come? Uh-huh. Genius. She's a genius. And so, our final and third impressive feat of this story. I'm ready. Not only does she successfully rebuild her brothel post-fire, she essentially rebuilds all of Seattle with the money that she has made from her first year, and then also the following money that she accumulates from the success of her brothel business. Several of Seattle's most economically prominent families founded their wealth off loans from Lou Grand. Um, and she saved a lot of these families from, bankrupt- from bankruptcy after the Panic of 1893. So Seattle has this great fire in 1889, economy is devastated. And then in 1893, they have this economic crisis. I can't explain the nature of this economic crisis because like generally they're very confusing, but it just, it just involves like- No worries. Banks? Banks question mark? Yeah, um, Alexander and- Hamilton. Yes, exactly. It involves the children of Alexander Hamilton's work. <laughs> um, and she saves Jacob Firth, remember Jacob Firth, the guy who initially invested in her brothel, from um, a bank run, which is when everyone goes up to your bank and then asks for their money back, but then you don't have enough money 
to um, give them all their money back because everyone asked at the same time. During the panic of 1893, by gratuitously depositing a large sum of money at a very convenient time. So she does them a favor back for investing um, in her brothel. She also contributed to several projects by Seattle's Chamber of Commerce and contributed more money to Seattle public education than all of the early citizens combined. And her financial moves weren't just enabled by capital. Um, Like, yes, she had a lot of money based on the success of her business, but they were also enabled by her financial intelligence. She was heavily and successfully involved in the stock market, and she obviously knows a thing or two about, like, giving loans and taking money from banks because she saved Jacob Firth's bank, and her loans are responsible for some of the richest families in Seattle. And it's crazy to think that today's hub of, like, tech and commerce, like the home of Amazon and Microsoft, would not exist without the work of Lou Gamm and her brothel. Seattle's built on sex work. And some really cool things I wanted to note about her, she was only, I mean, she was projected to be only 5'2 or 5'3. Oh my god. Take a load of that. (laughs) (laughs) This, This short representation in history, I love it. Representation. Sh- and you had to like find that fact or did she like actively okay was she <laughs> okay uh, we won't go it's into like... the details of how i found this information <laughs> but she was five two or five three did you like actively height. look up all the people you did research on this like story time <laughs> like you're like who's five foot two that i can talk about <laughs> um the same height as lady gaga the yeah. same height as probably ariana grande Okay, you're just stereotyping all Italian women now. Most important, <laughs> <laughs> and most importantly, the same height as me. Okay, okay. She is also theorized to be a lesbian because, oh, according funny. to her, like I guess journals and writings, she spent a suspicious amount of time with her quote unquote housekeeper, Amber Delmas. So historians theorize her to be a lesbian. It's like. Hello Kitty and Lou Graham. Legends. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Elsa. Don't forget Elsa. And <laughs> Elsa. She does a have a gecko. Explain a gecko, that, Disney. Right. <laughs> and her brothel still stands today in the Pioneer Square District of Seattle. So if you want to visit it, you can. Um, in 1903, she, she dies of questionable cause. We don't really know how she died. It could have been ulcer. It could have been syphilis. Rencher. But she left Seattle two months before her death as one of its wealthiest citizens. Um, new laws had kicked in that made her business very th- difficult to thrive or even survive, so she had to leave. Um, and when she died, her estate um, didn't go to any family. It went to, su- it went to support the common schools of King County. So it went to support education, public education. That's beautiful. And that is the story of Lou Brothel. I mean, Lou, oh, yeah. <laughs> Lou Graham, whose brothel and financial intelligence and business prowess built the home of Microsoft and Amazon and liberal millennial families today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where would, um, who's Microsoft? I'm so stupid. Bill Gates. Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> where would Gates, where would Bezos be without... One, Lou Graham, and two, sex work as a whole, so... Exactly. Write that down in your history books. Don't discount sex work. Decriminalize prostitution. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Maybe her brothel could have 
still existed and like went down and been passed on if new laws to kick in to make her business enable to thrive. You said it still stands today. Does the it not the business though? So do you know when it ended as a business? It ended two months before her death because new laws kicked in and so she left Seattle. Oh. So 1903. Sad. Yeah. And so we leave you off with our brunch tip. First, don't be a Karen. Legalize sex work. Feminism includes sex workers. Also, sex work can get you places. I'm sorry. I totally like talked over you. That's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Also, sex work can get you places. Whether it be the economic foundation of Seattle or a pirate queen. Don't knock it till you try it. (laughs) Okay, so thank you everyone for joining us at the Boys Who Brunch podcast. Expect more regular podcasting in the future. Wear masks, especially during brunch with friends, and probably do it outdoors if possible. Signing off, my name is Cameron Oster. And my name is Elaine Wynn. And together we are... The the Boys! boys. (laughs) (laughs) 